Rich, I don't think it would be a real good idea for me to try to do a real bad impersonation of John Wayne. So for everybody that's out there, this is John Wayne talking about the Alamo. This is going to shake hell out of people all over the world, and that is what I want most of all to accomplish. I want to remind the freedom-loving people of the world that not too long ago there were men and women in America who had the guts to stand up and fight for the things they believed in. The people of the Alamo realized that in order to live decently, a man must be prepared to die decently. There were no mamby-pamby pussyfoots, malingerers, or skedaddle in that brave band. They were rough, lusty, hard-fighting, hard-drinking, hard-living men who held one common conviction, that freedom was worth fighting and dying for, and they gave their last drop of blood to be true to it. In San Antonio, Texas, the Alamo is venerated as a sacred shrine, but it does not belong to Texas alone. It belongs to people everywhere who value the priceless treasure that has always been bought with blood, freedom. It reminds freedom-loving people all over the world of the kind of guts my country is built on. You think I'm a cornball? Well, I'm not ashamed to be proud of my country. John Wayne. This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Howdy! It's good to have you join us for another action-packed episode of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm Richard Prosh, and banging the dust off his chaps next to me is my co-host Paul Bishop. Howdy, pal. How are you? I'm fantastic, Rich. It's always great getting together with you to record another episode. And while we usually do our Oliver Twist impression at the end of the show... Um, Oliver Twist? What are you on about now? You know, Oliver Twist standing in front of Fagan with his porridge bowl extended and asking for more, please, sir. I'm about to do the same thing, asking for more, please, only I'm going to be holding out my 10-gallon hat. Okay, I get it. You're about to do our version of a PBS pledge drive. Only much shorter. We love doing the podcast, but there are a number of regular fees involved for everything from using the Zencaster Virtual Recording Studio, podcast hosting by Buzzsprout, editing program subscription from Descript, and more. So if any of our loyal listeners are willing to make a small one-time donation, there's a PayPal button at the top of the right-hand column on our website, sixgunjustice.com, to make it easy for you. Right below is a button to make a small monthly donation via our Patreon page. There's no hard sell going on here. Donations are not expected or obligatory. We appreciate any monetary help you can spare, but if you're not in a position to do so, we totally understand and hope you'll keep listening as we very much enjoy having all of you along with us on this trail ride. Can I sing, buddy? Can you spare a dime? Absolutely not. No. No. <laughs> You are all woke and no play, aren't you? <laughs> it has been a busy couple weeks pulling this episode together. There's been so much material to go over. Why don't you tell our listeners what we're covering today? If you haven't figured it out from our lead-in, today we're going to remember the Alamo in appreciation of this month's 185th anniversary of the Battle of the Alamo. Rather than let me get into the weeds far too early in this episode, Rich, I'm going to let you give us a quick synopsis of the historic events before we start talking about all of the fictional recreations in books, movies, TV miniseries, and a bunch of other stuff. 
With a little help from History.net, I'll give it a shot. The Battle of the Alamo during Texas War for Independence from Mexico lasted 13 days from February 23, 1836 to March 6, 1836. In December of 1835, a group of Texan volunteer soldiers had occupied the Alamo after the Texans had driven the occupying Mexican troops from Mexican Texas across the border and back into Mexico. The Alamo was a former Franciscan mission located near the present-day city of San Antonio, which had been turned into a fortified outpost. On February 23rd, a Mexican force numbering in the thousands, led by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, lay siege of the fort. Though vastly outnumbered, the Alamo's approximately 200 defenders, commanded by James Bowie and William Travis, and including the famed frontiersman Davy Crockett, held out for 13 days before the Mexican forces finally overpowered them, slaughtering almost all the Texicans and Tejanos, including Travis, Bowie, Crockett, and others, under Santa Ana's orders to give no quarter and show no mercy. Santa Ana's cruelty during the battle inspired many Texians and Tejanos to join the Texian army. Buoyed by a desire for revenge, the Texians defeated the Mexican army at the Battle of San Jacinto on April 21, 1836, ending the rebellion. For Texans, the Battle of the Alamo became an enduring symbol of their resistance to oppression and their struggle for independence, which they won later that year. The battle cry of Remember the Alamo later became popular during the Mexican-American War of 1846-1848. And we all know how that came out. We do. But here's the thing about the Alamo. You quite rightly hedged your bets stating a Mexican force numbering in the thousands, taking on the Alamo's approximately 200 defenders. Because every source you check, no matter how reliable, gives a different number. Exactly. Were there 1,500 Mexican troops who laid siege to the Alamo, or 6,000? Were there 189 defenders inside the Alamo, or 100, or 208, or any other combination of digits? Nobody survived the Alamo. Seven people surrendered, but were executed. There were a handful of non-combatants who survived. No, there weren't. Davy Crockett died at the Alamo. Davy Crockett wasn't at the Alamo. Davy had a coonskin hat. No, he didn't. And on and on. About the only thing anyone can agree on is the actual date of the siege and that it lasted 13 days. But I bet I can find a source somewhere that says differently. As we both found out while preparing for this episode, the history of the Alamo is far more about legend than it is about facts. So why don't you stampede the cattle and let's go down one of those famous rabbit holes you enjoy so much. Have you ever had the opportunity to go to the Alamo, Rich? I have not. I have been to Texas a few times, but I've never been to the Alamo. My son and his family live in San Antonio, so we've been able to have that pleasure of going to the Alamo, and it's well worth the trip. But I understand what everybody says when they see it for the first time. I didn't know it would be this small. This tiny Franciscan mission. And yet in our imagination, it's huge, right? It's like the Mona Lisa, which is also a lot smaller than you believe. In your imagination, you see it as a big picture. But when you actually see it, it's this little tiny frame. And that's the same way with the Alamo. But I got to tell you, the museum inside the Alamo is well worth visiting. And I was shocked when I went there to learn that Texas had a Navy. Really? <laughs> Who knew? And it played a big part in Texas independence because it harried the transport ships that were bringing in supplies for the Mexican army, intercepting them like pirates and turning all the supplies and weapons and stuff over to the Texicans. 
it was really an interesting thing to learn that I never knew about before. Who knew? It makes sense. So, getting back to the point, ever since it fell to Santa Ana in 1836, the Alamo has been the focus of every form of media you can imagine. From newspapers, to books, to movies, to toys, to coloring books, and anything else you want to name. It's almost overwhelming, and I know we want to talk about the most mainstream of what's out there, so I suggest the best thing to do is talk about a couple of the main entries in each category, and then summarize the rest. Agreed, but let's leave the movies until last, as they're among the best known of the Alamo tie-ins. Sure. Now, I know you were checking out the Marks Alamo playsets. I have to tell you, Rich, this baffles me. First, there's a whole book dedicated to documenting the many figures and variation of the Marks playsets. There's the Marks Alamo playset, the Marks Legends of the Alamo playset, the Marks Giant Alamo playset, and Marks' official Davy Crockett at the Alamo playset. Look, I'm all for playing with plastic cowboys and Indians, but we're talking about the Alamo here, one of the most pivotal and violent battles in history in which the good guys, at least from our perspective, get massacred. <laughs> right. It's kind of like having a Custer's Last Stand playset. They have those too. I kid you not. Hey, Richie, you want to come over and play Alamo? We can slaughter all the American heroes. Nah, why don't you come over to my house this time and we can play Little Bighorn and wipe out an entire regiment of U.S. cavalry. <laughs> exactly. It's not like these were marketed to adult war gamers. I mean, I could understand that. But these were kids' toys. At the risk of getting strung up by the woke generation, maybe these sold well in Mexico or to Native American kids. It's just weird to me. It's like having plastic army soldiers celebrating a World War II battle the Americans lost. It is strange, and so with that, we better move on. Okay, so explain to me the allure of the several Remember the Alamo coloring books for kids I came across. What better example can there be of rampant commercial merchandising going too far? What are the kids coloring? Pictures of Jim Bowie on his deathbed being bayoneted? <laughs> and we're moving on again. But, hey, Paul, you put together a fairly extensive cover cavalcade of paperback novels related to Alamo and posted those on our website, didn't you? I did, and a nice way to get me off the dime and onto another subject. Well done. I did do a post on the paperback covers, along with a separate post for many of the things we're talking about today. However, with the books, I concentrated on novels set around or at the Alamo even if some of them purported to be true accounts of the events that took place at the Alamo. That's the thing about the Alamo. As far as I'm concerned, the novels come closer to the true spirit of the Alamo than the questionable, often contradictory nonfiction accounts that don't necessarily get to the actual truth of the events. The Alamo, in quotes in all capital letters, is so much larger than the actual event, which has taken on almost mythical proportions. I can't help but think of the famous quote from the man who shot Liberty Valance, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. There's definitely more legend than facts when it comes to the Alamo. And, you know, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. I agree, because if it was all about the facts, the Alamo would have been forgotten long ago. It's the legends and the emotion that make us remember the Alamo. It's the associated patriotism, bravery, and the indomitable spirit from which both Texas and, by extension, the American West were forged. It was a minor battle that, by the very nature of its one-sidedness, became a major turning point in American history, with everything about it becoming larger than life with every retelling. And those retellings have become legend. In all of the books I read, or at least browsed for this episode, there were three I really enjoyed. 
one of which was Steve Frazee's novelization of John Wayne's 1960 big-screen epic, The Alamo. Hey, you were kind enough to send me a copy of that, knowing I'm a big fan of Frazee's novels. First, the packaging of the paperback was really cool, with photo stills from the movie inside the front and back covers. There's a great combination of an action scene and headshots of the actors on the front cover, and another cool movie still on the back. It's actually one of my favorite Western movie tie-in packages. Did you get any chance to read it? I did, and as usual, Frazee really delivers. We shouldn't be surprised since we both enjoyed Frazee's Whitman tie-ins and a number of his Western paperbacks. His novelization of The Outcast, which was a one-season wonder Western, is still one of my favorite TV tie-in novels. But here's a question only guys like us and our listeners would consider worthy of discussion. Uh-oh. Which came first, Frazee's novel or the screenplay by James Edward Grant it is supposedly based upon? There's a controversy? Ooh, I love controversy. Somewhat, yeah. There are reviews on the internet suggesting Frazee's novel was already written when the Batjack hype machine went to work promoting the Alamo as one of the biggest motion picture events ever. Batjack being John Wayne's production company. Yes, and obviously with all the other hype and commercial aspects surrounding the movie, they would want a tie-in novel. And apparently there was Frazee's book, finished, available, and a perfect fit for the need. However, there are other sources that claim absolutely not, asserting the book found a solid footing in Grant's script first, which had been written at Wayne's request long before the film was prepped to shoot. And what do we think? Having watched the movie and read the book in tandem, I think there's a good argument for the idea that Frazee's novel was, at the very least, more independent of the movie's shooting script than might be suggested by the book's packaging. I didn't find the dialogue or pacing in the book to be at all like the movie, really, and Frazee adds a great deal of first-hand historical research to the prose. So that's one example of the differences. In the book, Davy Crockett and a group of men lead a charge, only to be waylaid by a larger force. The good guys are laid to waste, and Crockett stands alone, red-eyed and roaring, with a rifle and a knife in hand. In an over-the-top scene, Frazee depicts Crockett going down with an improbable fight wherein he is shot and bayoneted in the shoulder, even as he kills several of his attackers, gutting and strangling a man barehanded with his dying breath. That's far different than the scene in the movie, where Crockett, played by John Wayne, is bayoneted once, but still manages to fling a fiery torch into the gunpowder battery and blow himself up. I guess truth is all about perspective and what the movie censors will accept. That's a good point. And we'll talk a lot more about the film later. But there were some, shall we say, interesting casting choices in the movie. But on the page, Frazee allows us to see the characters in our imagination without distraction. He does a great job. You also read a couple of Alamo novels that I know you class as historical fiction. They were both engaging reads that didn't get bogged down in a recitation of facts. If you're going to read anything about the Alamo, 13 Days to Glory by Lon Tinkle and The Alamo by John Myers Myers are where you should start. Just as a Sheriff Minutiae side note, 13 Days to Glory was originally titled simply The Alamo, but was retitled after it became the basis for the TV miniseries 13 Days to Glory, with James Arness as Jim Bowie, Brian Keith as Davy Crockett, and Alec Baldwin as Colonel William Travis. I'd also like to recommend The Gates of the Alamo, a 2001 historical novel by Stephen Harrigan, which focuses on a trio of fictional characters and mixes them in with the real-world heroes. 
The three main characters are Edmund McGowan, a proud and gifted naturalist whose life's work is threatened by the war against Mexico, the resourceful, widowed innkeeper Mary Mott, and her 16-year-old son Terrell, whose first shattering experience with love leads him instead to war and into the crucible of the Alamo. The novel is an engrossing read filled with dramatic scenes involving all the usual suspects and unfolds with a vivid immediacy describing the pivotal battle from the perspective of the Mexican attackers as well as the American defenders. Without putting too fine a point on it, the overall effect is heart-wrenching. And speaking of heart-wrenching, the Alamo has come to represent freedom, or at least the willingness to die for freedom. So not only are there historical novels about the Alamo, but there are more modern takes on the battle. Kevin Randall and Robert Cornett, who wrote the long-running Vietnam Grand Zero series, take the title Remember the Alamo to give us the first in their Time Mercenary series, in which 33 combat-hardened Vietnam vets are headed into the past on a mission to secure the richest oil land in history as American territory. And this time, the Alamo must not fall. Geez, if they're taking modern military weapons back with them, you think anybody would notice? It's hard to say, but in two other books in the series, Randall and Cornette send the same time mercenaries back to Gettysburg and also to the Battle of Little Bighorn. What did you think? Their Alamo book was popcorn reading, engaging enough while you're scarfing it down, but basically empty calories. I won't be reading the other two books in the series anytime soon. I know there's also another modern take on the Alamo. Yeah, none other than William W. Johnstone, or one of his ghostwriters, also got in the act in 2007 with a modern-day Alamo story called, predictably, Remember the Alamo. That's got to be one of the right-wing paranoia novels he specialized in. How did you guess? In order to garner votes from the Hispanic community in San Antonio, politicians agree to grant temporary dominion over the Alamo to the Mexican government for a week-long celebration. It doesn't take a blind man to see where this is going. <laughs> Despite your odd phrasing, you're right. Gulf War vet Phil Cody is pretty pissed off by this idea and organizes a group of veterans from wars as far back as WW2 to participate in a nonviolent protest on the day of the handover. When the inevitable moment comes, anti-American extremists calling themselves Reconquistadores reassert Mexican control of the Alamo before taking over the southwestern United States by the bloodiest means necessary. Okay, okay. Let me guess. American politicians are all getting their panties in a bunch, but are too concerned about their own careers to take action? Democrats, no doubt. They usually are in these paranoia thrillers from Johnstone. It's so by the numbers. Clearly Cody and his ragtag bag of patriots... Who? What a surprise. Are seriously outnumbered and outgunned. You can see how this is going to end up. <laughs> An Alamo novel that doesn't take itself quite as seriously is Flashman at the Alamo. This is a title many people have missed, including many Flashman fans, because the protagonist is not our cowardly but beloved Harry Flashman. Instead, it's his uncle, Tom Flashman, who's not quite as cowardly, but just as self-serving. I've never heard of this. Was it a prequel written by George MacDonald Fraser? It's a prequel of sorts, but it's written by English author Robert Brightwell, featuring the Napoleonic rogue Thomas Cochrane Flashman. As Brightwell puts it, Thomas Flashman is the questionable hero of ten totally historically accurate novels, covering the time period from 1800 to the 1830s. Ten books? Wow. Are they any good? They are, but here's the rub. They appear to be self-published, although of high quality with some great consistent covers, and they read well enough. At least Flashman at the Alamo kept me turning the pages. 
However, I can't seem to pin down if these were authorized by whoever currently controls the Flashman rights, and that may be why they aren't better known. An interesting point, since the better-known Harry Flashman, whose epic adventures were written by George MacDonald Frazier, was originally a character in Thomas Hughes' classic novel Tom Brown's School Days. You have to wonder if there was any permission given there. But enough idle speculation. Let's get back to the serious work at hand. Well, as serious as you can get talking about comics connected to the Alamo. I found a copy of The Two-Gun Kid, number 75, from 1966, with its Remember the Alamo story, with art by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. It has a cool cover by Jack Kirby and Vance Coletta of The Two-Gun Kid standing defiantly outside the Alamo. However, in 1970, Two-Gun Kid, number 95, gives us Remember the Alamo, again, but with an amazing John Severin cover of The Two-Gun Kid charging the Alamo. I don't have a copy of Two Gun Kid number 95, so I don't know if it's a reprint, but the cover on number 95 is superior. Perhaps one of our listeners knows the answer regarding that reprint situation. I do know there were a couple of Davy Crockett at the Alamo Comics. The first is a Dell comic titled Walt Disney's Davy Crockett at the Alamo, which is a tie-in to the 1955 film. It was really a compilation of TV episodes from Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, which ends at the Alamo. And the other is a Classics Illustrated version of the same story, simply titled Davy Crockett. I know there have been quite a few Davy Crockett comics over the years, but I take it these were the only two with a Alamo connection. Yes, with the exception of Captain Fortune Presents Davy Crockett at the Alamo, the 1995 mini promotional giveaway comic. It was about three inches by seven inches in size, with 16 pages of full-color newsprint. It averages around 50 bucks, but should be of interest to anybody who is an Alamo or Davy Crockett enthusiast. There are also a few graphic novels featuring the Alamo, but in my estimation, the ones that we've talked about are the only comics worth mentioning. But then again, I haven't seen everything that's out there. I know you were doing a Google search on Alamo puzzles and games. Any of those worth mentioning? None we really need to spend a lot of time on. There are a couple of Alamo board games, but most of the Alamo games are RPGs with a couple of computer strategy games along for the ride for anyone who might be interested. I did put up a post with pictures on the SickGunJustice.com website. So let's turn to television. You know, television hasn't been immune to Alamo fever. There have been at least four miniseries or made-for-TV movies that have dealt, at least in part, with the Alamo. My favorite of these is the 1998 TNT made-for-TV movie, Two for Texas, starring Chris Christopherson and Scott Berstow, and based on an early James Lee Burke novel. And I'm telling you, you can't go wrong with James Lee Burke. Absolutely, and the movie benefits from the strength of the source material. A story about two prisoners who escape from a Louisiana chain gang run by a vicious straw boss and lit out for Texas. In the process of the escape, the straw boss is killed, which sets his brother, the ex-warden, on the revenge trail. However, the two prisoners join up with Sam Houston's army to fight the Mexicans in order to have the charges against them dropped. Frustrated and filled with hate, the ex-warden sells guns to the Mexicans, which leads to the Alamo Massacre and the death of the two ex-prisoners' friend, Jim Bowie. The two then lead the avenging charge at San Jacinto that settles the war. Everything moves along in a very satisfying manner, all the better for the historical figures playing minor roles instead of being the focus. It sounds better than the somewhat bloated miniseries James Mishner's Texas, which was, of course, based on his novel of the same name. Overwritten and overwrought, even playing out over several episodes, there was just too many characters and too much packed into the story for it to ever gain focus. 
sort of like Mishner's books. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going there. But that said, I have to say I did like the Centennial miniseries based on his book Centennial. When I was a late teenager, I remember I read Space. I think that's the only Mishner book I read. And you're still probably turning the pages. Yeah, they're just big doorstop books. I was just turned off by Mishner's overly descriptive prose. Right now I'm reading a book, and I'm not going to mention the title. It was highly recommended. It's a frontier story. It's a thick book. I started the first chapter. I actually really liked the two main characters and wanted to get into the action with them. But all of a sudden, the author starts giving me a lecture on Iroquois history, and I'm done. I just can't get any further. I don't want that. I want to be entertained. I don't want to be lectured to. Exactly. A little bit of history in those books is fine, but when you start to feel like you need to take notes, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Somewhat better, but hardly perfect, is the made-for-TV miniseries 13 Days to Glory, which was based on the book I mentioned earlier by Lon Tinkle, starring James Arness as Jim Bowie, Brian Keith as Davy Crockett, Alec Baldwin as Colonel William Barrett Travis, and Rule Julia as Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. It also featured a single-scene cameo by Lauren Green as Sam Houston. You know, that's kind of fitting. Lauren Green as Sam Houston. I think that works. It works. There's an interesting tidbit about Tinkle, the author of the novel 13 Days to Glory. Did you know he was a consultant during the making of The Alamo with John Wayne? I did not know that. Apparently, Sheriff Minushai has been asleep on the job. That's okay. I got your back. At the time The Alamo was being filmed in 1960, Tinkle was recognized as one of the foremost authorities on the Battle of the Alamo. He's also the guy who, after seeing the inaccuracies in the film, wanted his name taken off the credits, which is why you won't find them there. <laughs> I can see why the historical inaccuracies and anachronisms in the final film would upset a guy whose reputation rested on delivering the actual facts. I wonder if he was happy with the end result when his 13 Days to Glory was made into a miniseries, which used Jim Bowie as its pivotal character. I don't know if Tinkle was happy, but the production was originally designed to correct many of the inaccuracies perpetuated by the Alamo. However, being made for TV, it lacked any kind of budget to be a serious contender in the Alamo stakes. The budget was stretched by filming on the still-standing Alamo Village sets built by John Wayne, which was probably a wise decision because it gave it a really good look. However, not so wise was the decision to recreate the final battle scenes with cutting room floor footage from 1955's The Last Command. Ooh, yeah. Wasn't that another film that concentrated on Jim Bowie instead of Davy Crockett? Yes, with one of my favorite actors, Sterling Hayden, starring as Bowie. The Last Command was produced by Republic Pictures, actually, despite John Wayne, who had split with the studio over wanting to direct and star in his own Alamo film production. The script was suspiciously close to Wayne's Alamo script, which had been written and passed around by public studios prior to the split. However, despite being the most costly film Republic had ever made, its budget was still minuscule compared to the $12 million Wayne lavished on the Alamo. As a result, the scope of the film is not as epic, which is why the footage was able to be used for a TV miniseries. That said, the film is effective, maintaining a faster, less self-indulgent pace in the Alamo, the action scenes are hard and fast, and the final climactic battle plays honestly with the audience's emotions. I think the film is underrated, but that may be the Sterling Hayden fanboy in me talking. And since we seem to have segued from TV to film, why don't we dig deeper into those big screen offerings? And we should probably start with the big daddy of them all, John Wayne's The Alamo. It's really just The Alamo, but John Wayne is so invested in this film it eventually became part of him. 
The Alamo was clearly John Wayne's dream project, which took him over 15 years and cost $12 million, much of it out of his own pocket to complete. And in my opinion, the film suffers from Wayne being too close to it. Sure, it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, and I'm not saying it didn't deserve those, but being writer, director, producer, and major financier gave Wayne far too many coonskin caps to wear. Just as there are many conflicting facts about the Battle of the Alamo, there are also conflicting facts about the making of the movie, in particular John Ford's involvement as a director. One story is John Ford showed up on the set and let John Wayne know he was willing to ease Wayne's burden by directing portions of the film. Wayne gave Ford a small crew, requesting Ford go out and do some second unit work, mostly of the Mexican cavalry riding through the countryside as they approached the Alamo. Some estimates say Ford's footage ended up being about 10 to 15% of the finished film. <laughs> the cojones on this guy. Can you imagine telling John Ford, hey, just go over there and direct. Just just go direct something over there. Yeah, <laughs> here's a second unit. Just yeah. go film some guys riding toward the Alamo. Keep yourself busy, pal. <laughs> Stay out of my hair. What there is of it. <laughs> you know, other sources disagree about that, though, stating Wayne eventually deemed most of Ford's footage unusable and little, if any of it, made it into the final cut of the film. Allegedly, the footage Ford believed he shot of the Mexican cavalry patrolling the countryside was actually reshot by another second unit director, but Wayne didn't have the heart to tell Ford. I'm just wondering where Ford was in his career at this point, that you couldn't tell him that he couldn't even film cavalry riding in. I, I don't know what to believe here. <laughs> right, he's somewhere you know, drinking in a bar with Ed Wood or something. I mean, John Ford could direct something like this from the grave. It wouldn't be too much to ask. Right, right. You know, there were also some strange casting decisions in this film. Clark Gable was offered the part of Colonel William Travis, and get this, Charlton Heston was asked to play Jim Bowie. They were the actors Wayne wanted most, but they turned him down. Both would later claim to regret that decision, but without their star power, the studio began to worry about their own investment in an epic and incredibly expensive film being shot by Wayne, a first-time director. And that's how Richard Woodmark got involved. United Artists pushed for Widmark to be given the role of Colonel William Travis as box office insurance. However, Widmark objected to the part, but he reluctantly agreed to play Jim Bowie. This was something he came to regret, realizing that at 5'9", he seemed ridiculous playing the larger-than-life Jim Bowie, who was supposed to be 6'6". Widmark and Wayne ended up at each other's throats during much of this filming, but it wasn't just over Widmark's dissatisfaction with the role. He and Wayne were diametrically opposed politically, and Widmark refused to follow Wayne's directing requests, stating that he just didn't feel motivated. I just don't feel motivated. What's my motivation for this scene? Your motivation is they're coming in to kill everybody in the Alamo. Yeah, that's not really enough. <laughs> it wouldn't have fixed the politics, but I really wonder if things wouldn't have gone better if Wayne and Widmark had switched roles. They certainly would have fit the perception of the roles better, and Wayne could have ditched that raccoon mullet he was sporting on his head. Oh man, that thing is really terrible. It looks like it's alive half the time, doesn't it? <laughs> it looks like it's burrowing in, that tail flipping around, and I'm going, okay, this is just not a good look for John Wayne. No, it isn't. It isn't. Wayne actually wanted to play the much smaller role of Sam Houston so that he could concentrate on directing. However, United Artists demanded he was to be in a starring role to protect their investment. Richard Boone took the part of Houston, waiving his monetary fee in return for being able to keep the beautiful buckskin coat he wore in the role. That's quite the trade-off. I wonder what and happened to that coat. It's got to be in a museum somewhere, you got to think. Either that or it's in moth-eaten holes somewhere 
Yeah. Maybe yeah. he was buried in it. I don't yeah. know. Maybe. Two Rat Packers, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr., also wanted to get in on the Alamo action. Davis wanted the role of the Negro slave, and Wayne considered him, but he eventually had to turn him down. Davis later recalled Wayne was respectful and told him straight up about the problem, that being that there were a lot of influential Texans investing in the film, and they didn't like the idea Davis was going out with the white actress Mae Britt, who would later become Davis's wife. Sinatra, on the other hand, lobbied for the role of William Travis, but eventually couldn't commit because of scheduling issues. Which left the spot for the very English Lawrence Harvey to take on the role of Travis, which seemed to me a very odd fit. Yeah, reportedly Wayne admired Harvey and wanted the classically trained British actor to give the movie some class. But British nudiness would have gone over better if the film had been about the Battle of Rourke's Drift as opposed to the Alamo. As we talked about in a prior episode, United Artists wanted Audie Murphy for the role of Travis. While he was willing, Wayne let his ego get in the way and he refused to hire him. For me, it's these casting issues that get in the way of what should be an amazing and immersive experience. The casting does play a big part in making this a difficult film to love. But, Paul, so does Wayne's tendency to throw in too much patriotic hyperbole. Yeah, I hear you. Having his mountain man characters deliver Shakespearean-type soliloquies about patriotism was definitely out of place. And it led to the film being way too long. My understanding is that before it premiered, it was actually cut by 30 minutes, and it could easily have had another 30 minutes cut out of it. Agreed. Absolutely. Overall, the Alamo is quite an achievement because with everything it had to overcome, the odds against the film succeeding were almost as low as Davy Crockett surviving that final assault. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to admire, I agree. It has to have been more than 30 years since I originally watched the Alamo, but much of it stayed with me ever since. So watching it again for this episode and remembering the context of the time it was made in, it holds up fairly well. It does. One thing I learned from some of the bonus material in Steve Frazee's tie-in novel was the film was shot in Todd A.O. What in the world is Todd A.O.? I had no idea. And, you know, I've been paying attention to this stuff for quite a while. I've never heard that expression before. I thought it was a person. Todd A.O. It says so right there in a weird blurb right on the cover of the book. See John Wayne's $12 million spectacle in Todd A.O. I had to look it up. Todd A.O. was a widescreen process invented to compete with Cinerama. It had only limited success. I believe the Alamo was the only Western film using the process. Sheriff Minutiae is jealous. And so he should be. I worked hard to dig up that fact. <laughs> you also dug up some facts for an article you wrote not long ago about the soundtrack to the Alamo. What made that special? There are some great things about the Alamo. I like some of the cinematography. I like some of the set pieces. But really, for me, it's Dmitry Tiomkin who steals the show with the score. We've mentioned Tiomkin briefly before for his 1953 Academy Award win with Ned Washington for the original song from High Noon, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, sung by Tex Ritter. For the Alamo, he again received an Oscar nomination, this time with Paul Francis Webster, for the song The Green Leaves of Summer, sung by the Brothers Four. While it didn't win the award, the score as a whole won a Golden Globe Award. The Ballad of the Alamo, performed by Marty Robbins, is another well-known song from that soundtrack. There's more to like than just these popular tracks, however. Tiumkin does a remarkable job capturing the brooding flavor of the Alamo's story, introducing Mexican and Old West flourishes at various intervals, and rising to rousing heights when the narrative demands it. 
I like the Alamo soundtrack as much as any Western score I've got and would easily put it in my top five. So if you don't own it, look it up on YouTube, listen to some tracks, and see if you don't think so, too. Who knew that The Green Leaves of Summer was a song from the Alamo? That's a real Sheriff Minutiae trivia contest question. <laughs> exactly. I read that John Wayne was a fan of the Kingston Trio's recording of Remember the Alamo, and he wanted to use the song in the film, but for various reasons, the rights to the song couldn't be attained. I don't know what the issues were, but in the long run, I believe the film was better off having Dimitri Tiomkin do an original score. Tiomkin was a master at the sweeping style of composition needed for epic films like the Alamo. He'd already scored westerns such as Red River, High Noon, and Gunfight at the OK Corral. And you can't argue with 22 nominations and four Oscars, three of which were for Best Original Score. And as we've talked about before, he was supposed to compose the score for The Magnificent Seven, but quit the set after a dispute with the director, which led, of course, to the less experienced Leonard Bernstein being brought in. While Bernstein hit a home run with his instantly recognizable Magnificent Seven theme, I often wonder what Tiomkin would have done. I'd be hard-pressed to say he would have done better. Tiomkin is a fantastic composer, but I can't really conceive of the Magnificent Seven without Bernstein's theme. It's just such an integral part of the thing. Kind of like the James Bond theme. It's just perfect. It is. As usual, I have dragged us off point, but in thinking about Tiomkin's music during the battle scenes, brings up what for me is a general problem with Alamo movies. If the story doesn't concern itself with a battle, it's sort of a letdown at best and a snooze fest at worst. And it's the battle scenes that can ultimately make or break an Alamo-themed film. The Alamo Village sets built by Batjack for the original 1960 film were so good that many other Alamo films took advantage of that backdrop. They were built near Brackettville, Texas. The Alamo Village set was intentionally turned 180 degrees from the actual Alamo layout in San Antonio. The facade of the chapel actually faces west in San Antonio, but it faces east in Alamo Village. Wayne did this because there were a number of scenes that needed to be shot at dawn. But by turning the set, Wayne figured they could shoot those scenes at sundown, which would be easier on the crew, and the audience wouldn't know any different. Hey, Sheriff Minutiae makes a comeback. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> of the 15 Alamo films shot at Alamo Village that are listed at Wikipedia, more than half were made during the 1980s, including Gone to Texas, the Sam Houston TV biopic we talked about in our last episode. And I agree with your assessment about some of these fictionalized pictures coming off as more than a little bit boring. There are one or two exceptions, including The Last Command, which I mentioned earlier. And I'm going to give props to the History Channel's 10-hour miniseries, Texas Rising. The lavish five episodes pick up at the end of the battle, literally on the smoking remains of the battlefield, and go from there with what came next for Santa Ana, Sam Houston, President Andrew Jackson, and other characters. The production begins with the Alamo, but does a great job of weaving those threads of cause and effect into the true history of the Texas Revolution and the birth of the Texas Rangers. Directed by Roland Joffe, who is known for the killing fields, the whole cinematic affair is star-studded with the likes of Chris Christopherson, Ray Liotta, Brendan Fraser, and others. It's excellent viewing if you get the chance, and available for streaming at Amazon Prime. Paul, it really is a lavish production. Everything from the opening special effect montage to the scenery to the costumes I thought were really incredible. So I was really impressed and shout out to our listeners who recommended this series. And I take it that Brendan Fraser doesn't turn up as George of the Jungle or Dudley Do-Right. <laughs> no, surprisingly, he does very well. 
I have to put in a plug for Viva Max, which is a peripherally related Alamo film, adapted from a satirical novel about a modern Mexican general who invades Texas with a hundred men in order to recapture the Alamo. Peter Ustinov stars as Max and is completely in his element. All of this is done in order for Max to prove his bravery to his girlfriend, but the satiric nature of the film offended the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, who actually control access to the Alamo today, and they were so put off by the screenplay that they placed the Alamo off-limits for filming. However, many of the scenes are creatively shot outside the Alamo, among the tourists and merchants in San Antonio. It's not brilliant, but it's worth watching. I watched The Man from the Alamo, 1953, directed by Bud Bedeker, starring Glenn Ford, and found a solid color western. Ford, along with co-stars Hugh O'Brien and Chill Wills, turns in a professional performance that's neither stellar nor simply phoned in. John Stroud is at the Battle of the Alamo as things go from bad to worse. The scenario there is grim, but some of the men are equally concerned about their homesteader families and the small communities Santa Ana may try to take after the Alamo falls. One man must get away from the Alamo and warn those communities. As one of the characters says, one man won't make any difference here, but one man might save our families. Stroud, played by Glenn Ford, draws straws and becomes the unlucky fella to play the coward. Much is made about how he will forever be remembered as yellow for leaving the battle, with nobody but the dead knowing it was for a greater cause. It's clear from an early scene in the movie where Stroud risks his life to write a toppled Texas battle flag that he's not a coward and is, in fact, more brave than any man. Branded a traitor, he returns home only to find his family has already been killed by American guerrilla sympathizers to Santa Ana under the command of terrorist Jess Wade. Stroud goes undercover and infiltrates Wade's gang and wins the day for the homesteaders, who include Julie Adams, the love interest for Ford's character, as well as the original Creature from the Black Lagoon's love interest a year later. From Glenn Ford to the Creature from the Black Lagoon, is there a difference? <sighs> it was the 1950s. It was the 1950s. Those things were acceptable back then. Story credit is given to our friend from the noir episode, Niven Bush, who wrote the noir classic The Postman Always Rings Twice, and I could absolutely see his hand in Stroud's doomed predicament as widower and accused deserter. Stuff like that is great to know, to have that background knowledge as you're watching the film, because you can really see what's going on. I like The Man from the Alamo, but other than the premise and some early scenes, it was basically a homesteader defense story that capitalized on the historic Texas battle. Most of the film has nothing at all to do with the Alamo. There's no reason Stroud couldn't be branded a coward for just about any offense and then go on from there. It's interesting that the Alamo is a jumping off point, though. I think that makes the motivation at least understandable. I'm not sure that it could have been anything else. The Alamo really has some impact. It's got some early scenes there inside the Alamo that are really well acted as well and worth watching. There are other Alamo movies that are varying quality, but in the interest of time, why don't we just go through a few of them quickly? Maybe the earliest of the Alamo films, 1915's Martyrs of the Alamo, a.k.a. The Birth of Texas, directed by D.W. Griffith, features Douglas Fairbanks in his very first film role. Because of the era in which it was made, the film has been accused of a certain amount of racism towards Mexican people, and perhaps serves best as a historical document rather than any kind of entertaining movie today. And along those same lines of film history, Davy Crockett and the Fall of the Alamo was a 1926 silent movie, now almost lost to time, except for a follow-up film made 12 years later in 1933. 
That film was a low-budget effort called Heroes of the Alamo and was made utilizing about a half-hour of footage from Davy Crockett and the fall of the Alamo, which is the only remnant that now survives of the original film. Again, neither movie is exactly high entertainment. 1937 gave us The Alamo, starring Bruce Warren, Rex Lease, and Ruth Finlay. The minuscule budget made this film short on action and long on character set pieces. It's also mostly put together with footage cannibalized from some of these previous films. San Antonio from 1945 gave Errol Flynn another chance to swashbuckle his way across the Alamo battlefield. This was a few years after the big showdown there. For Flynn, it was a place to settle a local range war. The film is notable for having been written by W.R. Burnett, well known for Little Caesar and the Bogart film High Sierra, and Alan LeMay, who wrote The Searchers. A costly film to make, much to the chagrin of Jack Warner, it became the highest grossing of Flynn's films made in the 1940s. There's the clanging of the Chuckwagon Triangle partner telling us to wrap up this episode with our shootouts and shoutouts. Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being our premier sponsor. Thanks also to our other sponsors, author Chris Enns and the Western Writers of America. Thanks to the Roundup Magazine for their support in promoting our podcast. Next Monday, I'll be hosting a Six-Gun Justice Speed Listen, featuring everything you need to know about Steve Holland, the man whose face launched a thousand Western paperbacks, all in under 15 minutes, give or take. And in two weeks, we'll be back with episode 31 of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast. And don't forget our Six-Gun Justice Conversation segments every Wednesday, when either Rich or I get to hang around the Six-Gun Justice Corral talking with writers and friends who love the Western genre as much as we do. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourselves, and keep living the cowboy code. Adios for now. Remember the Alamo! We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another full-length episode of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by author Chris Enns, the Western Writers of America, and Wolfpack Publishing, publishers of such best-selling Western series as The Legend of the Black Rose and Concho.